You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Is the law of attraction bullshit? I think largely it is, but there are some ways to approach thinking about it that are worthwhile. I talk about this and so many other things with the one and only Case Kenny. We talk about how to use pride as a positive to measure your success. We talk about relationships. We talk about anxiety. We talk about so many topics that are near and dear to me. He has a great podcast called New Mindset, Who Dis? And he's got a half a million Instagram followers where he posts his quotes all the time. He has a recent new book called That's Bold of You, How to Thrive as Your Most Vibrant, Weird, and Real Self. All of these things. He's such a great person to talk to. We had a fun conversation. Here's Case Kenny. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. What's your secret origin? Because it's hard to find out like who you are. Your <laughs> advice is so good. And you talk about so many different topics on your podcast, new mindset, who this, but like, where does this all come from? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have like a headline grabbing rags to riches, you know, beat down to rise up from the ashes type story. I'm just a, a regular guy who at a certain point in my life, and I'll describe it briefly, um, you know, just really found the power of mindfulness, not self-development, not trying to be a guru, a thought leader, a coach, a life coach, not my thing, definitely not my thing. Just a guy who, who tapped into the power of, of mindfulness and realized what it was and kind of pulled a 180 as far as being, I used to be very cynical towards life advice or, or mindfulness or anything spiritual or vulnerable or sensitive. And now I, I joke that I share my feelings for a living, uh, which is quite literally the, the opposite of that. But yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm 34. Um, in my 20s, very somewhat traditional career path. Um, I worked in advertising for 12 years uh, in, in Chicago. I ran an advertising sales team for a technology company. I worked at a bunch of ad agencies. Before that, I went to the University of Notre Dame. I majored in languages. I majored in Mandarin, Chinese, and modern standard Arabic, just kind of things that I was interested in. So you're at the CIA. <laughs> also, this is my cover for the CIA. Um, yeah. <laughs> the guy who shares his feelings, it's a deep cover. Uh, I, uh, uh, so I've always, you know, been kind of voracious about just like chasing things that interested me. Uh, yeah. And in fact, when I graduated from Notre Dame, my two options were, um, I was going to potentially work for the NSA was pretty far down that path, or I was going to live abroad and do international business. And I, I lived in Shanghai for a bit, but ultimately came back to Chicago, worked in advertising. Uh, and basically before I turned 30, it was kind of just a, I don't like the word quarter life crisis. I don't like the word crisis, but it was that in a sense of just kind of looking at my life when I was about to turn 30, I was like, man, it would really suck if I looked back in 10, 20, 30 years and realized that I was doing things that weren't really true to me. I was dating people just to, to date them. I was working a job just to make money. I was good at sales. It was technology sales. You can make a lot of money. 
you know, I was like, man, it would really, it would really suck to look back and realize I never challenged myself to ask myself why I was doing the things I was doing, why I had the goals I had, so on and so forth. So literally from that frustration, and I'm very type A, I was like, I need an answer. Why don't I have an answer? I did what is now very common, but in 2018 wasn't so much so, I guess, which was started the podcast. Literally just as a means to creatively challenge myself. Because I could write online and hide behind words, but you know, I've, I've found the, the format of podcasting to be a bit more vulnerable. And that was literally it. Through the podcast, I realized what I was doing when I was asking myself these questions and reflecting on what I've learned and kind of giving myself advice live. I was practicing the art of, of mindfulness in, in a sense. I was you know, uh, encouraging myself to be mindful, to be self-aware, and to come up with actions that reflected that. And that's and the rest is history from there. Did the podcast? The podcast, uh, you know, blew up in a sense. I started writing online. I wrote a bunch of journals. Started a business. Wrote a bunch of books. I consult for on mindfulness. But that's basically it. Just the, the story of a guy who you know did this thing from a place of personal need, but then took it a step further by just continuing to pull on this thread of interest. And I'm very interested in the intersection of mindfulness and culture. Like I've created books, I do a lot in music. I have products in Target and Walmart around the idea of mindfulness, just bringing it to life in, in as many different ways as possible. But yeah, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a very simple story. Just of a guy who you know wanted to get to know himself better, and then through that process, found out the power of this thing. And also, I'm good at it. I was actually listening to your TED talk earlier about. 10,000 hour rule versus you know the experimentation mindset and I realized through the process of all the different ways that I've tried to tackle my life and big questions and also through many many hours of output that you can get really good at something and help yourself and help other people so it's kind of where I'm at now I love that like it it shows that you don't have to be in the depths of despair in order to make meaningful change in your life and and explore these questions and so on like I think that's almost become too much of a cliche in a lot of self-help that you have to hit bottom in order to make some discoveries about yourself. And, and it's just simply not true. Like you can make discoveries about yourself today, like right now. There's one thing you said, you said you don't like to use the word crisis. I've been wondering about this a lot lately. Like what is the role personally or scientifically or whatever, what is the role of negative self-talk in hmm. what happens in one's life? Yeah. Like I'm assuming you're not using the word crisis to not place that story in your brain because then the brain will want it to be true. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I do it for a couple of different reasons. I spend a lot of time writing and speaking, so I have a close relationship with words and I think the words we use should be chosen carefully. We should curate them for a reason. And so I think for two reasons. For one, I like to stay against uh, away from words that should be used in certain contexts, namely words like trauma, narcissism, these words that every millennial and Gen Z throws around willy-nilly online to describe you know, scenarios that might contain elements of that, but there's a sense of victimhood that follows close behind that I don't necessarily agree with. And I'm very optimistic and compassionate and I give everyone empathy, but I really try to use words for the prescription that they actually describe. And I think, yeah, when it comes to the to word crisis, you know, if you want to talk about law of attraction or manifestation, like if you start saying, I am in a crisis, well, you're going to find evidence to support that you are in a crisis versus, no, you're just in a period of reinvention or you're in a, in a period of letting go of a chapter and entering a new one. So I think the words we use are really, really powerful. And if I were to sit there and when I was 29 and be like, man, I'm lost. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm single. I want to be in a relationship, this, that, and the other. I, I could have wallowed in despair and just gone in circles versus the mentality I had, which was, 
I'm fired up that I don't have an answer. Let's go out and get an answer. And I think that served me really well. And I think your actions and your perspective follow the words you use. You're going to go out and don't think of a yellow car. You're going to go see a million yellow cars. So, you know, I try to be really intentional about the words that I use. So let's say someone is really depressed or really anxious and they're listening to this and they say, I'd like to do that. But the reality is why I just lost my job or my girlfriend just left me or my boyfriend just left me or whatever. And I'm dealing with all these bad things. Now that's fact. I don't know what they're saying. Like, how should they start? What can they, what actions, what first actions can they take? Yeah. I mean, I think you just said it for one, like you can't think your way out of a crisis. If you are in a one, you can't think your way, you can't think your way out of anxious thoughts and depression. Certainly, you know, there's a, a time and place to really, really sit in those feelings. And when that's the case, don't talk to me, talk to a therapist, <laughs> talk to someone who's qualified for that. But I think ultimately the point of any mindful introspection should be to encourage you to act in a new way, in an evolved way, in a different way. The thing that I just see so often is we have a negative thought, we identify the negative thought, which is great, but then we let that negative thought keep us in the same pattern of actions. So we have to find a way to break through. You know, for me, the, the, the simplest action I think anyone can take when they're in a cycle of unfulfilling behavior or results or just anxiety is journaling. I think journaling is so, so powerful, especially for people like men. So I'm a, I'm a straight man in my 30s, very normal, average guy. You know, there's a lot of aversion for men to be open and honest, to go to therapy, to do all these things. Journaling is such a, like a great positive gateway drug into those things. And I think, you know, I think we all agree that a, a a point of life, a purpose of life is to go out and find answers. Like, yeah, I want to go out and find all these answers, but we forget that to find answers, we need to ask ourselves really poignant questions. And I think journaling can do that for you in an unforced, safe space. So I really encourage people to journal. There's many, many different kinds of journaling, of course. I have created many, many journals. Um, I do that for a living. I think the right question can really help open your mind. Because I think at the end of the day, when you're stuck in an anxious thought process, you're just reinforcing assumptions mm -hmm. and likely negative assumptions and potentially wrong assumptions. And I think the point right. of mindfulness is to remind you of what you don't know so that you can open that door instead of continuing to bang your head on the same closed door for sake of an analogy. So that's why I, that's why I love mindfulness. That's why I love journaling, um, whatever different form it might take for different people, but just showing yourself what you don't know so that you don't keep coming home to the same negative, comfortable conclusions. I want to get back to the mindfulness and the journaling in a second and like maybe like just how one could start doing these things because there's all sorts of ways to do it. But, you know, I think you and I share the same opinion about things like the law of attraction, which is when we, most of the time when we hear people talking about it, it's usually just total bullshit. <laughs> but there is this aspect where like, you can't just make a list of things that you want and then have it like rain down on you. But there is ways to be optimistic and have a positive outlook. And it's not like magic's going to happen, but like, if you start noticing all the yellow cars, I mean, if you start thinking about, oh, I'm going to notice yellow cars, you'll see yellow cars everywhere. So like, what's the connection between how we think on a daily basis to what are the events and things that happen in our lives? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think we share the same mentality there. I mean, I don't know how much time you spend on 
as social media or TikTok, but it's it's become like a meme where like people be like, ah, I woke up this morning, had coffee, and I manifested, and then I went about my day. I'm like, what exactly did you do in that period? Like, I'm all for like sitting down and doing a vision board or writing down goals. Awesome. Um, but manifest as a verb has always confused me. I don't know what that means. So when I like when I think about the topic, like I think about it very, very logically. Like my type of mindfulness, my type of attraction is all about observation and, and logic. And it's basically just the fact that like if you're telling yourself a story, again, about the words we use, if you're telling yourself a story, for instance, that you're you're unlovable because all of your past relationships have ended in failure, you've been disrespected, lied to, overlooked, so on and so forth. I'm an unlovable person. If that's the story you're telling yourself, but then you've written down a goal somewhere that you want to find your soulmate and live happily after together, how do you expect those two realities to coexist? They, they literally cannot. You can't tell yourself that you're unlovable, but then picture and hope for a reality that is the opposite of that. I just don't see how that connects. And I'm not an overly spiritual person. Just logically, those are polar opposites. And I don't see how that would possibly work. So when I think about the word manifestation, I do think about it in a somewhat spiritual sense, but it's a logical spiritual sense in that it's simply aligning what you tell yourself with what you want. So at least you're creating the opportunity for that to happen in life because then the practical happens, your actions follow suit. If you're telling yourself that you're unlovable, well, then all the cliches that therapists get paid so much to help you with are going to come true. You're going to go back to your ex. You're going to date narcissists. You're going to try to fill that gap that was conditioned in your adolescence. You're going to do all those things because you're telling yourself this story. So really for me, it's just combining those two stories, the inner and the outer reality that you want to have. And then it comes down to my favorite journal prompt that I do all the time. That's in basically every journal I've ever had. It's like, if you want to manifest something, you have to be the type of person who is going to do the actions that will get you that result. So I always do the journal exercise. One of the hallmarks of habit formation is it's called I'm the kind of person who, and you write down all the verb statements that describe the actions that will make you happy, fulfilled, in love, so on and so forth. But the difference is it's focused on action. I talk to a lot of people. If you were to ask the average 20-something person, what's your goal in life? What do you want in life? The majority of the answers I hear are, I just want to be happy, or I'm working on being more confident or fulfilled, or I want to be successful, right? Good goals, I suppose, but, but those are adjectives. And I have a real problem with adjectives because adjectives, for one, are subjective, they're borrowed, and they're temporary. You could want to be happy, but along the way, you're definitely not going to be happy consistently. And I think there's a real problem with the human wiring that when we're not happy consistently, we start to derive new definitions of happiness. And we're like, well, I guess I'm not a happy person, or I guess I'm a failure if you're not being successful, so on and so forth. So the exercise, I'm the kind of person who, it forces you to come back to verbs. So instead of saying, I want to be successful, you say, I'm the kind of person who gets in the office first, makes the most cold calls in a day, does what he says he's going to do, so on and so forth. You know, Instead of, I want to be in love, I'm the kind of person who doesn't ignore red flags, I'm the kind of person who's willing to care first and love first, so on and so forth, verbs. So now we have a blueprint to manifest that feeling that otherwise we wouldn't have if we're still stuck on verbs and feelings. So that's kind of how I, I logic my way through from mindfulness from being a spiritual thing to manifestation to you know some kind of action plan. Yeah, no, it's all connected. And it's interesting because when you move from adjective to verbs, you're really moving from future wishful thinking to a kind of mindfulness where you become aware not just, oh, how much money is in the bank account, but how you would feel if you, let's say, already had the type of personality that 
was able to accumulate all these things that previously I just wanted, but for a moment or an hour or for a day, or you, you train not only your actions, but your emotions and how you feel about yourself as if you already had these things. And again, I'm not talking about law of attraction, but let's say what it is, is you want to find the love of your life. You're not going to find it. Like you say, if you're miserable all the time, but if you think of yourself as the sort of person who is optimistic, happy, attracts people, maybe even picture qualities of people who you admire and, and you say, I have those qualities as well. Then emotionally, you do start to feel the kind of confidence you would feel if you had already achieved these goals. So the goals move from some future thing that's unknown to something that, yeah, I know what this feels like because I'm feeling like it right now. So, you, so it's as if you already have the goal, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think the whole thing is very cyclical, right? It's, it's actions and feelings intertwining in a way that incentivizes you to act so you can reach that feeling. So yeah, I mean, I think it's all one and the same. You know, I just gravitate towards the one that inspires action. <laughs> I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So 
you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I've always written that for me to function, I have to be functioning on, on four levels, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. So like the physical side, you take the actions, like you say, you can't think yourself out of a problem. You have to take actions to move yourself, but that can't really happen. If emotionally you're not functioning, you can't say I'm miserable, but I'll be happy. If you have mm -hmm. to already think, you know, what would I already be feeling if I had these things in my life. Like you kind of really have to picture, and this is sort of the mindfulness aspect. This goes into the mental, like you have to be aware when you're not feeling the way you would, like if you slip back into feeling these miserable emotions or your brain reminds you like, Hey, you're not a success. Don't forget you were a failure, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. This is all mental. And then spiritual, you have, kind of have to have faith that this is going to work, that all these elements together, visualizing yourself as like the ha having already achieved whether it's happiness or some level of spirituality or some you know monetary goal you know there's a certain amount of faith that the universe delivers to, to those who are who are looking for the yellow cars and, yeah. and it, it is all tied together yeah i don't think we can dismiss the idea of faith i wouldn't call it blind faith because as we're talking about here it's like informed faith right um, you know, it's cosmic. like what you refer to as luck. Like, and I, I agree with that too. You've, you've did a podcast about luck a few months ago or, or recently. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I, let's, instead of using the word faith is one thing I tell myself is I am the luckiest person alive and yes. it doesn't yes. even matter if I say it out loud, I can't jinx myself. Then you become the sort of person who's lucky. Yeah. I mean, literally. I, yeah. I love that. Love that episode. It was basically recapping the, the book, uh, Chase Chance and Creativity, the role of novelty in life, which is, which is great and really interesting. But yeah, I think, you know, you, you do the kind of things that we're talking about here, introspection, you know, I, I think we can realize for one, how lucky we are in a sense and, you know, call that gratitude, whatever, but also the, the way that we can supercharge our luck through action, 
through being in motion, through being authentic, through do, through doing these things that I think we're quick to dismiss as negatives. Like, oh, I've tried a million times. That means, and I haven't succeeded. That means I'm not lucky, or you know, I'm too unique. I'm too weird. I'm too this to be lucky. Like, I'm big, and I know you are too. On the on the role of experimentation, that's the ultimate way to get lucky. Of of course, you know, I think we're we're quick. You know. To me, I, I'm big on the power of opposites. One of my the big genesis for one of my uh, things that I talk a lot about was Seinfeld. I don't know if you're a big Seinfeld fan, but there's a scene where um, it, it's 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 a episode where George basically just decides to do the opposite of everything he's been doing, yeah. like just the polar opposite, the opposite George. And yeah, it's hilarious. And it it it's it, it, you know obviously it's in you know Jerry's classic humor style, but it like works out really well for him. And I've always really leaned into the idea of opposites, like the power of contrast, the the power of logical opposites. Like a lot of the times when as we're talking about, like when people are in these cycles of negative thinking, or I'm not a lucky person. What we're doing is we're internalizing the idea of Murphy's law, for instance, right? Which is saying if something bad will happen, it will happen to you, and it is happening to you, and that's horrible and bad. The worst case scenario. But I think about a statement like that. And I'm like, okay, okay. There in life, there definitely are worst case scenarios. That would be a zero on a spectrum of zero to 100, zero being the worst case, 100 being the best case. Yeah, absolutely. But if there is a zero, that means logically there has to exist a 100. It has to exist. Doesn't mean I deserve it, but it has to exist. So how can we use mindfulness? How can we use the idea of luck and action and introspection to at least open our eyes to that 100 and focus our attention there, our faith, our our luck, our capacity to receive cosmic goodness how can we focus there and to me just like that's such a silly simple statement of course but when we're in these episodes of doubt we have just forgotten about the possibility of anything outside of zero we're just so focused on it so i think sometimes like energizing yourself to literally do the opposite or consider the opposite possibility of an outcome sometimes is all you need to like shake yourself loose and and try something different and i I find a lot of you know self-empowerment through just simple opposite 180 contrast ideas what's an example where you've done it or you've seen someone do it like let's say in the field of dating oh oh my gosh i mean uh, everything from you know I, i talk to people all the time a lot of my audience is women and a lot of women have gotten in this headspace of waiting for men to show them interest right from from a traditional gender roles perspective as well as just you know this is just the expectation and you know i talk to women all the time and they're saying yeah you know i don't want to show interest first because that's not what you do and also what if they say no rejection is terrible blah 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 you know i've talked to so many women and suppose coach them through acting first being the first to try so on and so forth and you have many examples in my life of where you know that gender reversal i suppose worked out in their favor and, and they're married or they're together and that's just a very, very simple opposite. Um, but I mean, I suppose in, in any any assumption-driven area of life, you can engage um, the, the opposite of, well, I mean, I, I quit my career to, to share my feelings for a living and I was you know, doing really well on a management level in, in advertising sales and this literally could not be more of an opposite. Um, and it's you know, worked out really well for me. So I suppose you could apply it in, in any area of life. Yeah, I feel like this is a book title, The Power of Opposites. It should be if it's not. <laughs> um, so you you quit your job. You, obviously, the podcast is doing well. You have half a million Instagram followers. You're selling books, journals, other merchandise. What convinced you finally? What took you over to the top to quit your job? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I would say for one, I did them both concurrently for a long time. I'm a big proponent of side hustling or at least creating leverage for yourself before you jump ship. I'm kind of yeah. 
I don't even know if it's contrary anymore, but like, you know, the whole, if you're not all in, you're all out, you know, you got to be, you got to sleep, eat, sleep and breathe your startup or whatever. I, I don't really agree with that model because I think about if I were to have quit my job in 2018, right when the podcast released, and I remember the first month I got 57,000 downloads, which obviously is not a lot now, but for a first time podcaster, that's an astronomical amount. It's very, very difficult sure. to do. And I remember at that time, and then I got an agent and, and all these things started happening fast. I was like, I could, I was like, I got to quit my job. Oh my gosh, I see the path to $10,000 a month or $20,000 a month. I, I could have easily quit, but I had no leverage, financial leverage, that is. And I knew that if I had quit my job, I would have said yes to every single advertiser, every single company that wanted me to put quotes on their merch. I knew I would have been operating from this place of no leverage, and I knew that would have been a mistake. So I committed to working on the business until you know my net earnings were the same as my sales job and that I had you know consistency there to an extent. Um, and I was just patient with it. Um, and luckily, I, I launched a, my journal business in the, in the middle of COVID, started releasing journals. And that went zero to 100 really, really, really fast. Um, I think appetite for wellness products during COVID um, obviously peaked and e-commerce peaked. And um, you know this is before some of the Apple privacy changes with ads. So we were just running this thing really, really hard. And I just saw, I saw the pathway there. And you know, eventually it was coming to the the end of the year and the next year. And I was like, I'm just I'm not feeling the enthusiasm for the job anymore, for one. Uh, but two, like I have this thing that I'm passionate about that makes me want to get up every single morning. It's helping other people. You know, it's time to prove this to myself. Cause I remember when I first started working in sales in 2014 and 2013 or something, I was super, super timid, not a type A person. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be an account executive. I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I just saw my evolution from that guy to a guy who ended up being, you know, a vice president of this company and just the, the way that I just changed my mentality around asking for what I want, going from zero to 100, doing these things, managing a team. I was like, if I could do that, which I had so much doubt about at the time, I, I can do this because I've already proven it. I've been podcasting for years. I know how to talk. I know how to write. I know how to listen. Um, I know how to build a product. I remember when I first launched my journal, I was like, how am I going to find a manufacturer? How am I going to ship this to people? How am I going to build a website? How am I going to do email marketing? No idea. Figured that all out. So I think it was just an accumulation of finding proof points of being proud of myself and having confidence that I can continue to do that. That's interesting. Uh, finding proof points so you can be proud of yourself, like that being a metric for when to kind of jump ship, I think is very interesting. I haven't her usually it's a monetary goal, like you know, like, as you said. Also, like that—that's what I did when I jumped from a full-time job to my very first startup. I had to make sure the earnings were were equal, at least. So uh, that was an important thing. But also, maybe I should have thought more about moments when I could be proud of myself. I think I have a hard time celebrating small successes. Uh, me too. Uh, <laughs> still learn, still working on that. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, like. Because I, I, I kind of changed my barometer for success. Like previously in my job, I was like, I want to be a successful salesperson. I want to make a ton of money doing this, that, and the other. And I really, really reevaluated that for some of the reasons we just discussed, right? Adjectives and verbs. But also, I just found much more consistency in pushing myself to do new things through the lens of being proud of myself. And the more that I was like, yes, I'm proud of myself, the more I realized that all the other metrics were, were ticked off as well. Because that means that I did the things I was afraid to do. I pushed myself, I showed up, I was consistent with everything. And I just found that uh, as an incentive 
to do more, you know, pushing myself to be proud of myself was one of those things. And it's also a very personal thing for me. Like I am like crazy about like if I see dirty dishes, I have to do them. Not in a like OCD <laughs> capacity, but more just because I know if I'm not, I'm disappointed in myself. Like why why did I allow laziness to win over in that scenario? Like I respond really well to like kind of like tough guy talk. I know not everyone does, but to me like that really pushes me to be proud of myself. And I've just found that when you're proud of yourself, you know, success, happiness, uh, relationships, like these things follow suit because it means you're not biting your tongue, means you're not being subtle, means you're not, you know, backing down from a challenge. You're doing the things that you would need to do to be successful. But through the lens of self-pride, it's more self-motivated. And I just, you know, obviously in anything you do, you need to find a very emotionally charged personal source of motivation. And pride for me is is that. Yeah, I, I like that metric. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm gonna start using it. When when you talk about mindfulness, do you view it as meditation or a style of meditation? Like, what what do you mean specifically when you say mindfulness? And how, again, can yeah. someone listening say, oh, I've never done that before. It seems too woo-woo or whatever. Yeah. How should I start? Yeah. Well, I mean, you just described me, I would say, in my 20s. I was like, mindfulness, that's a big word. What does that mean? Like, anytime I thought about mindfulness, I thought about people who would go to Southeast Asia and, you know, you know, do a silent retreat or talk about their chakras and vibrations and frequencies and aligning their energies and intentions and Again, don't get me wrong, I've, I've come around to understanding what they really mean when they say those things and not just these words. But for me, literally, when I think about mindfulness, it's we're going to use the definition in the word. I mean, it's to be mindful, which is to be aware. So when I start thinking about mindfulness, I think, okay, mindfulness is self-awareness. But it, that's not enough for me and it's not practical enough for me because you could be aware of something but it doesn't mean you're doing anything about it, right? You could be aware that you shouldn't be out till 4 a.m., that you shouldn't be lazy, that you shouldn't be unhealthy, so on and so forth. So there has to be an element of engagement and you know action capacity. So I've evolved it from self-awareness to honesty. Because at least now you're getting somewhere. Now you're thinking, all right, honesty with honesty, that means I'm getting to why with why. We could break it down. We could do the opposite. We could do something about that. But still, honesty is very circumstantial. It's one thing on a Tuesday when it's dark out and you've had a bad week, to be honest with yourself, versus Saturday with the boys out having a beer. Different levels of honesty. So I still think there needs to be more. So I, I still come back to the word why. When I think about mindfulness, I think about asking yourself why and letting your actions follow suit. To me, that, that, is, that is the essence of, of mindfulness. Um, asking yourself, why? why do I feel a certain way? Why do I have certain goals? It's challenging yourself so you can uncover what you don't know um, and then to be incentivized to align maybe something like pride with actions that would uncover that why or challenge that why. So that's all it is to me. Like Mindfulness is why, which is such a silly, simple answer. And it's much more nuanced than that, I suppose. And you know, many people will have different definitions and they're all correct. But for me, I needed a way as a regular guy to be honest with myself, to be vulnerable with other people, um, and to tap into what truly motivated me. Not borrowing other people's, you know, not falling in line, not doing what was expected of me. And to me, why, the form of why, really got me to that point because it was a way of challenging myself. So that, that, that's how I think about mindfulness. Um, and th that can take different forms, of course, right? You could ask yourself why in the form of journaling, which is how it started for me. You could ask why in the form of uh, counseling or therapy on a, on a walk, 
yoga, meditation, whatever it may be. Um, for me, journaling is like my sweet spot, but you know, it takes different forms. But for me, it comes back to that one word. What if you lie to yourself in the why? So like, oh, why did they fire me? Well, because they're jerks. You know, that yeah. could be the, the answer. There has, it seems like you have to combine the why with some sort of ownership. Like some, every situation I'm in has me in it. So I, I'm the common denominator of all, all my situations, whether they're good or bad. So I've got to take some ownership of them. So it seems like I can't just say, if I say, oh, why did they fire you? It can't be just because they're jerks or because of the economy or whatever. And I'm not saying everybody should also portray themselves as the victim, but like, I don't know. How do you, how do you intermesh all those different things? Yeah. Yeah. It's such a good point. Yeah. I mean, I think it does go hand in hand with honesty. Like if we're going to be honest with ourselves, hopefully we're asking ourselves a question like, what is the role that I'm playing in this problem, frustration, anxiety, so on and so forth. I think beyond pushing yourself there. Yeah. I think some people are, are very averse to being honest and taking accountability in that sense. But I think it's essential to breaking the pattern. So, I mean, I, I would say it's that simple for me. Like, you're not going to get anything out of mindfulness unless you're being radically honest with yourself. And I think accountability is obviously the, the truest form of being honest. But yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's that simple for me. I, I would say, you know, a lot of the times, like when we're stuck in, in cycles, obviously we do a lot of blaming, we do a lot of uh, assuming roles. I mean, there's a whole science and theory around the, the drama triangle and like what role, what role do we take in life when it comes to frustrations? Um, are we, it's like a persecutor, do we blame other people? Victim, are we the victim? A rescuer, are we, try, are we deflecting our own need for vulnerability by saving other people, right? Um, and again, great topic for a therapist to help people unpack, not me, a therapist. But I think really challenging the robot mode role that you go into can really help you find that accountability, even when it's been buried and buried and buried underneath years of habit, conditioning in adolescence, whatever it may be. Um, but you know, a lot of statements with I, I think are helpful rather than they or them or they to me using yourself as the object. I think, you know, coming home to that can potentially give you an aha moment of realizing, you know, the role that you're playing in your own demise or, you know, continued behavior. Yeah. It's really interesting. Kind of making sure when you're asking why we're asking the right person, you're not asking them some external thing. You're not asking you know, the economy, you're asking like, <laughs> why am I kind of involved in some negative, what I view as some negative situation and not thinking about anybody external? I Yeah, I'd add to that as well. Like uh, one of the like most practical journal exercises I have people do is like, there's a weird dichotomy in our lives where like we tend to give like decent advice to our friends because we can observe without feeling intently, mm -hmm. right? We don't have that, that closeness um, that like intimately cl closeness to the thing that we're addressing. And we certainly aren't rooted in maybe years and years and years of, of repeated behavior or assumptions. Like we tend to give good advice. So sometimes I try to encourage people to like flip that sometimes and be like, if your friend were to come to you with the same issue that you're facing, like you're facing an issue, you're, you're stuck in a cycle of something. If your friend were to come to you with that same exact issue, like, what would you say to them? Like, try to come outside of your body and observe the issue as if your friend were coming to you. What advice would you give them? Like, what would your knee-jerk advice be? And I find just sometimes like a little bit of like super simple mental role play can help do exactly what, what you just said is, you know, try to try to see it from a, from a different lens. That could be helpful as well. We just have to find a way to get out of our heads sometimes. Um, those are heads that are just beating 
likely the same assumptions that we've had beaten into us for for years and years and years. And something as simple as, you know, trying to do a little role play of if your friend asked you that, if your friend came to you with the same issue, what would you say to them? Sometimes that could be really helpful. Yeah, a lot of this is about, I don't want to say like kind of self-hypnosis, but it's sort of like tricking the brain to go down a different path and then it usually goes down. So like if you ask yourself that question, what would a friend say to this as opposed to what I say about my own situation? Now the brain's got a different task than just repeating the narrative it always tells you. And journaling probably is a great way, or I also find it's a great way to unlock that because then I don't really call it journaling as much as storytelling because it's not necessarily, there's just a little bit of arm's length. So it's not 100% about me, even if I'm telling a story about myself. It's it allows me to more impassively look at a situation. No, I, I I love that. Yeah, I think there's a there's like a degree of separation that's required to be really honest with yourself, which is like ironic because to be honest with yourself, you have to be close to yourself. But if you're too close to yourself, you're not being truly honest because you're just repeating what you want to hear. So it's like you need to put some sliver of separation or just like a temporary ability to observe and not feel. And I think that's where the real magic happens. I do think journaling is perfect for that. Um, I think there's a lot of good kinds of journaling. And I think there's some journaling that will empower you just to repeat things. Like there's a lot of journaling that's, you know, you have your your, your five by five and and your, um, you know, your grid journaling that you just kind of stream of consciousness or like, what's one thing you're grateful for today? Or what's one thing on your mind where you're just kind of repeating the same things over and over again? My whole thing with journaling is the power of a combination of prompted and unprompted. And with prompted, it's very challenging, very different questions that you can't really avoid by saying the same truths and assumptions. So, you know, I think you know, as far as journaling goes, storytelling, I love that as a description because that's really what you're doing. You're either repeating the same story, you're creating a new story, you're writing a new chapter, you're closing an old chapter, whatever it may be. Yeah, I like to think a lot about journaling on like a on a line, on a linear line of, you know, past, present, and future. It's like, how can we look back at our past and maybe instead of reinforcing some truth that we've been living by and, and in through years, how can we maybe come up with a new a new thought around it, a, a new lesson, a new boundary, a new standard? How can we live that in the present? How can we project that into the future through promises to ourselves, through a, a commitment to being proud of ourselves, things like that. But yeah, I mean, again, the idea of mindfulness for me has always been like, it's almost like a like you're a lawyer and you're saying, oh, here is the evidence, here is exhibit A, and therefore here is what the jury should vote for, right? Uh, here's how they should rule. Like I have in my life, I have been through A, therefore I believe B. Here's why B is true. Not theory, not fairy dust, not borrowing it from other people, but here is why. And then, you know, challenging that if that's something we've been living by for a long time or cementing it because it's a compassionate truth. I think a lot of mindfulness is simply making sense of your memories, looking back, because we can really only do that looking back, but doing that in a really honest, accountable way. Yeah, like I think, I think when my writing career really changed, is when I started doing that, looking back at past experiences, like for instance, when I went broke or maybe I wasn't the best possible friend or whatever, and really dissecting it in this journaling or storytelling way so that, again, it helped me to understand it better. I wasn't in the middle of it right when I was writing it, so I was able to have some perspective. And it was it was important to be honest and not to be afraid of being honest. And for myself, I held myself accountable by essentially publishing everything I was writing. So that's why I view it a slightly different than, than journaling, although I think the journaling is valuable, just as valuable. So for me, it was it was accountable 
by letting other people see it so that I really had to be the totally honest and, and I, and it had to be really uncomfortable for me. Yeah. Well, I love that. I mean, I just think that is such a powerful mentality. Like some mindfulness isn't always this like sexy, spiritual, altruistic thing. It's like, sometimes you got to brute force, force yourself to do these things, force yourself to put out your writing, force yourself to put out your music, force yourself to be honest with your partner. You know, I think fear of vulnerability, um, is, is the, the quickest path to regret. Um, and I think particularly for men, there's a big fear of vulnerability because um, it's, it's a, a quick, a quick rebrand to being too sensitive or, you know, too feminine or whatever it may be. I wrote a book um, in January called That's Bold of You, which is basically how I broke down encouraging people to be bold, to be vulnerable, to be sensitive. And one of the, the real cruxes of that was this experiment called the beautiful mess effect um, that these researchers did, which is basically studying the way in, in which we're very hypocritical when it comes to the topic of vulnerability. Namely, we love vulnerability in other people. We love people who are honest and open and true and weird. Like we, we, for the most part, we celebrate those kind of people. We want them in our lives, right? We want those people. We don't want fake people. We don't want people who are watered down. We want the real thing. But then when it comes to the same exact vulnerability in ourselves, we come up with these crazy hypotheses and assumptions and scenarios to talk ourselves out of being vulnerable. Uh, vulnerability in many different senses. They did a bunch of experiments around vulnerability, around admitting a mistake, vulnerability around um, you know, asking someone out. They, they did one of vulnerability around singing a song in front of, in front of a bunch of strangers that they've never sung before. Um, and basically what they found was that the, they separated these people into two groups, people who were doing the vulnerable thing and people who were judging the vulnerable thing. And right before uh, the people were told that they were going to do it, they asked them, hey, how do you feel about singing the song in front of strangers, for instance? And everyone said, this is going to be horrible. We're going to get laughed at. They're going to hate me. They're going to think I'm, I'm stupid and, and so on and so forth. But then they also asked the other group, they said, hey, real quick, like before they sing, like, what, what are you thinking? And they're be like, it doesn't matter. The fact that they're willing to sing just shows courage and vulnerability. So basically, and then they kept flip-flopping the scenarios. And every single time, the people observing said that it was amazing, that it was great, that they admired vulnerability. But every single person who was about to or did express vulnerability in some form, they were so harsh on themselves. And then they flip-flopped it and had the same people join the other groups and it was still the same. So it was just an interesting anecdote on how hypocritical we are when it comes to the topic of vulnerability and how quick we are to talk ourselves out of the same thing that we say openly that we admire and want in other people, but in ourselves, we're very averse to it. So again, finding a way to forcing yourself just to get beyond that barrier and see what's there, I think could be really rewarding. So like when you're journaling, how do you get beyond that barrier? How do you, how do you kind of like keep yourself accountable that you're being honest? Like what's a good prompt for someone to start with? I'm not so sure. I mean, I, I think one, there's a, a certain level of, of intuition there. Like, are you getting value from journaling? Like emptying yourself of, of self-judgment or whatever it is that's on your mind, it should feel rather cathartic. If you're not getting anything from it, there's likely something in place there. I do think a lot of the power of journaling also has to do with context. Like I need music to feel vulnerable, something just about the way that I'm wired, which is also how I've gotten into, you know, music and, and production and working in that industry. Um, there's a obviously a very close emotional tie between music and journaling. Um, but I think we need to find the setting that makes us feel the most vulnerable. Like without that, you're just answering a question. You're maybe saying what you want to hear. You're just doing it because you saw, I don't know, James Clear talk about habit formation and journaling and how it's an alpha thing to do. Like we, we have to have one, a desire to get something from it, but two, be in a headspace where we're willing to be vulnerable. I've never written anything 
come up with a podcast title without listening to music. That's my thing. Maybe other people have different. And you make music too. Like, let, let's discuss this. How did you get into making music? Yeah, well, that's that was always more of just a, a passion of mine. Uh, I love dance music, dance music, house music, techno tech, any any genre of EDM for the most part. It has always found it to be, you know, you could be having a bad day and you put on the music and just the structure of dance music with the BPMs and the break and the build and the drop, like you just you just can't help but feel feel something. You feel something, um, and I always just found that really encouraging. And then always, you know, through my early twenties and twenties, always just you know a voracious consumer of music and enjoyed music and enjoyed you know DJing and producing as a hobby. Um, and then you know, as experimentation would have it, when I started the podcast in 2018, there was one day when I was uh, trying to find a clip of the podcast in, in, in my program. And I also had Spotify open because I was listening to music and I was tabbing too fast and they both started playing at the same time, a clip from my podcast and this uh, dance track that I was listening to. And the timing on it was just uh, amazing in that it was the in the interlude and the build of a track and I was talking and then the track dropped and I stopped talking and it was like perfect. I was like, well, that was really cool to have an interlude in this dance track that was building, building, building. I was talking, talking, talking and then it dropped and it was perfect. I was like, I love this. Why not combine what I do professionally and what I am passionate about? So then from there, I started doing these dance music guided meditations, basically where I work with DJs and producers uh, and my own stuff to basically put together these sets that are like you know forty minutes long, like a DJ set where DJs will play their set and in interludes they'll come in and talk about their new track or their tour that's coming up, buy my merch, whatever. I'm basically re- replacing that with mindfulness along the way, so it's very very upbeat, hundred and you know twenty six beats per minute plus Case Kenny mindfulness. And and you can listen to it while you're working out, for instance. That was a big motivation for me, talking about the right headspace. I'm a little ADD. If you put me down on the couch and tell me to be mindful, it's not really going to work. And a lot of people are the same way. Um, So I was like, why not give people a dose of mindfulness when they're on a run or walking or driving or let's, let's input mindfulness into culture and it's been really cool. Like I, I'm, on Friday, I'm releasing a, a mix with Andy Grammer. I've done some stuff with Martin Garrix, like a bunch of these like bigger names in, in dance music and, and pop music. So it's just really cool to see those worlds colliding. But it came from happenstance as well as just the desire to be creative. When I grew up, I went to Waldorf school for a couple of years. It's like a Montessori type, you know, learning through playing concept. So I've always been inclined if I'm interested in something to like if I like music, for instance. I can't just listen to it. I have to make it myself, even if I'm not good at it. So I think that kind of inclination has always served me well. If I'm interested in something, I want to I want to stick my hands in it. And it's kind of cool to see that take flight here in a pretty unique way. And, and that's really important too. And it's part of uh, experimentation. Like, don't let anyone say, "Oh, you can't do music. You're not a musician, or you didn't go to music school, or you didn't you haven't been like a prodigy in music since you were four years old, like like all the other musicians are." Like, I don't want to say everybody can do anything, but most people can do lots of things. <laughs> and 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 being yeah. able to do your passions is really important. Like, we only live once. So, you know, I, I tell people all the time, if you like comedy, go up at least once on stage, do stand-up comedy. If you like tennis, play in your club's tennis championship. If you want to take violin lessons, just just try it to see what happens. And people are afraid, I think, to experiment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, for me, I'm, I'm I don't produce great music. My, my sweet spot is is you know DJing, recording, and mixing. But yeah, I mean, for a long time, I talked myself out of the idea because who am I? 
Like, I'm not, I'm not the coolest guy in the world. And DJs are cool, man. Look at them. They're cool with all their, you know, music and, and women and festivals and clubs. Like, I'm not that guy. So I <laughs> talked myself out of it for a long time. And I'm so glad I didn't. Because for one, you'd be shocked. Martin Garrix, number one DJ in the world. Andy Grammer, you know, uh, platinum award-winning guy. They all say yes. They want to work with you. I work with a bunch of the record labels now. Did you reach out to them directly? Or how did you reach out to like Andy Grammer? Oh, uh, he actually came to me, but it's the other ones that just reached out. I reached out, reached out to their uh, publicist, uh, their PR teams, because that's where the real eagerness lies, or the record labels. Like record labels are always looking for ways to promote streaming. And podcasting, of course, is streaming adjacent, I suppose. Um, so they're very eager. And then you show them what you have to offer, who you've worked with in the past. You show them that you're serious. You show them that you're good at what you do. And plus, you, you email them, you know, 30, 40 times. Eventually, they'll say, okay, fine. <laughs> and they'll do it. And that's always, for the most part, worked pretty well for me. That's great. Well, well, look, Case Kenny, you have a great podcast. You're on like almost near episode 500, right? You're at around 475 episodes, yeah. something like that. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that's an incredible run. Like, that's podcast pro right there. So, you know, New Mindset, Who Dis?, is the name of the podcast and t- name some of the titles, some of the books, the, the, the bold one you just came out with. Yeah. I have a book that's bold of you. Uh, I wrote a book called single is your superpower. It's about embracing singlehood. I wrote a, a journal book concept called, but first inner peace. Um, I have a couple other journals uh, called unbothered and the new mindset journal, but just different ways to crack life in all its forms from anxious thoughts to pressure to be, uh, in a relationship to how to manifest, to how to be real and honest and bold, just different ways to apply a lens of mindfulness and honesty to your life. Yeah, and 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 your I love the fact that you've dealt with all these issues, so many of these issues on your podcast, like four four hundred eighty of these issues on your podcast, basically, and and then in your books and on your blog, on, on what's what's your URL of the website because your your blog touches on a lot of these. Issues. Yes, it's just newmindsethudis.com. It's all one word, bit of a mouthful. And of course, on your Instagram, half a million followers, where you have like quotes uh, and and lots of you know people engaged in those quotes and so on. So, Case, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy, but this is, I love the topics you addressed. I love your stances on them. And everybody should just go out and listen to your, your podcast and read your books and, and enjoy your material. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I meant it when I was saying that before. I remember in 2014, before I started this and I was kind of just learning about online and blogging, I very distinctly remember reading your blog voraciously. So, uh, you know, I'd be remiss to, to not say that, you know, you were definitely an inspiration uh, early on for me. So I appreciate you. And it's cool to see us come full circle here. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, of and, and thanks for, again for coming on. Thank you. 